Business Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Today's episode features two guest authors, so I'm just going to cut right to the chase so I can fit in both segments. Then stay tuned for some info regarding a special upcoming episode and how you can get involved. My first guest is author Jennifer K. Morita, who started her writing career as a journalist, working her way up from a small weekly newspaper in Paradise, California, to the Sacramento Bee, before becoming a freelance writer and stay-at-home mom. Six months into the pandemic, after purging, painting, and baking along with the rest of the world, Jennifer finally decided to write the mystery she'd been thinking about for the last 25 years. She signed with literary agent Lori Galvin of Avidus Creative Management in June 2021 and is currently revising her manuscript, A Traditional Mystery. Her first short story, Cranes in the Cemetery, was published in the Capital Crimes 2021 Anthology Cemetery Plots of Northern California. Jennifer is a UCLA graduate and vice president of her local Sisters in Crime chapter. She is a member of Crime Writers of Color and Mystery Writers of America. When she isn't writing, reading, or pushing Girl Scout cookies, she enjoys watching British mysteries, cooking, and baking. Her favorite shows are Kim's Convenience, Unforgotten, Top Shelf, and The Great British Bake Off. Aside from leisurely hikes with her family, Zumba is the only form of exercise she willingly participates in. Jennifer lives in California with her husband and two daughters. So welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow, 25 years that you held on to that mystery. <laughs> That's yeah. a long time to hold on to a story. I kind of did it the is. same thing, but, um, <laughs> and then you decided to write it during the pandemic. So, uh, and then you signed with the amazing Lori Galvin, which is awesome. Um, thank you. And you're working on revisions for that novel. So can you give us kind of a, a general, like, how did that all fall together? Well, it uh, came together, um, you know, I, I mean, I had the idea for the character 20, you know, I've been probably playing around with the idea for the character for 25 years, but the actual storyline and plot um, didn't really gel until the pandemic when I sat down to write. Um, and then I think because I've been thinking about it for so long, I was just on fire. You know, I just decided, well, this is my chance. It's the pandemic. I can't do anything else. So A, I got to get this thing written before we go back to normal. And B, if I'm going to make a go of it, I need to try and find a literary agent. And I, you know, so I just kind of did a crash course in a way. Yeah, that all worked. Uh, Joined Twitter and all of that. And I, I got really lucky. I, I found Lori um, on Hive Pitch, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, Hive Pitch. my okay. very first agent's like. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. And can you give us a little bit of the premise of the book? Sure. Uh, so it's about Maya Wong. She is uh, an out-of-work, 30-something newspaper reporter who reluctantly returns home to Hawaii after living on the mainland for years. She takes a job as a ghostwriter for a rich white developer who wants to have his biography told. Um, And so when a body is found floating in his pool, she suddenly becomes witness to a murder investigation. And to make matters worse, the homicide detective in charge of the case is her ex. Mm -hmm. 
Of course. Um, yes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the evidence seems to be pointing to the strange man that Maya had seen on the estate. But um, when she narrowly escapes a series of life-threatening incidents, she finally kind of begins to suspect her new boss is a killer. Um, so she has to figure out who the real killer is before she becomes the next victim. That sounds amazing. Thank and, you. <laughs> and so you're in revisions with that with Laurie, is that right? Yeah. So I finished um, the main part of the revision. I mean, it's basically I rewrote the thing. <laughs> <laughs> or I rewrote the last half of it anyway. <laughs> and I need to go back and flesh out the villain a little bit more and a couple of the other characters. There's a few more elements I wanted to add. And then I will be sending it to beta readers and critique partners. I have to find critique partners. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll be sending it to my agent. So I have no idea how long that part of the process will take, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it can kind of vary depending on on how lengthy the revisions are and, and what all you mm -hmm. need to do, right? Yeah. And where did the inspiration come for this novel? The inspiration came from, I think, during my early years as a newspaper reporter, you know, I worked at several small town papers, either as an intern or as a reporter. And um, there's a lot of quirky people in those small towns. And a lot of weird things happen that you think, yeah, they're not news stories, but you think, i got to use this somewhere, right? So I always thought it would be fun to write a mystery with some of that material. So I, I like the idea of having a newspaper reporter as the main character. Um, it was also something I knew. So, And then the other part of that was I wanted the character to be Asian American, like me. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of it. It's There's more now. There are more Asian American characters now. But at the time, there was very few. And so that's kind of where I got the idea for the character. And, and like I said earlier, um, you know, I didn't really flesh out the idea of the real plot or anything like that until much later. And so you mentioned that you joined Twitter in that and you were on Hive Pitch. So you have some experience with pitch contests. So mm -hmm. how did that process go for you? It was kind of hard because, um, you know, I didn't join Twitter until November, I guess, of 2020. So that's how I found out about Twitter pitch contests. I, I knew someone who had gotten an agent on Twitter, but I didn't know the person very well or, or at all. Actually, it was a friend of a friend. So I didn't know how that happened. And then when I joined Twitter and I became part of the writing community, I heard about these pitch contests. I was like, that's crazy. I thought it was the craziest thing. And so I started trying to put together my pitches and it's hard, right? Those, yeah. You only have how many characters? I always forget the actual number. 280 characters, not okay, very many. Right. <laughs> not <laughs> no. enough. <laughs> no. And then you have to put the hashtags and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up taking a workshop on how to craft a pitch for these contests. And it was supposed to be for the March Pit Mad that year. I guess it was 2021. And I ended up with three pitches that I really liked, but I also had an idea for revising my manuscript. So I decided not to do that pit mat and focus on redoing my manuscript instead. And so I ended up doing Hive Pitch in April and then API Pit for Asian Pacific Islander creators in May. And, and then I queried the agents that I thought were a good fit for me. 
And then I ended up signing Lori before the June pit nab. So yeah, yeah. So it happened very quickly, but the process was hard. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not easy. It's fun when you're in yes. it. It can also be stressful, but I think it's fun. And I think the most important thing that you get out of it is that you get to connect with all these other writers, right? Yeah, and it's, exactly. It's a way to well, you learn as well. You see all of these other fantastic pitches and and right. you learn from them as well. I, really I think actually crafting the pitches too really helps you focus very much on what the important part of your story is. Yeah. So, and it's, and when you see other people and what they do, you kind of get some good ideas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that was, it was interesting. And I, you know, so I didn't do pit and I never did any of the pit nets, which mm -hmm. are, there's so many more people that do those. So it's a lot crazier. Um, but you know, the ones that I did were a little, slower yeah <laughs> I guess yeah well whatever works though worked for you so yeah. that's great <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to talk a little bit about writing organizations um when did you become a member of writing organizations and what prompted you to do so I joined Sisters in Crime about a year ago and um same with the Mystery Writers of America and I did it because a friend of mine Laura Jensen Walker who has written three cozy mysteries, she um, offered to read my manuscript for me. And um, when she was done, she said, you know, this is what you're supposed to be doing. So here's what you need to do. You need to join these organizations. And so I did. And then I joined the Capital Crimes chapter of Sisters in Crime. And I started going to their meetings on Zoom and they were great. I mean, like the first one I went to, Ray James um, interviewed Rachel Housel Hall, and it was, they were both amazing. Um, so I was super impressed. And the next meeting that I went to, Tori Eldridge was the speaker. Oh. And um, she, we, and then they have breakout rooms afterwards. And so she happened to be in my room and she said, you need to join Crime Writers of Color. So I did. And they're another terrific resource. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been really lucky in the organizations that I've joined. They've been mm -hmm. great. Um, and so since then, you've also become the VP of Capital Crimes. So how did that all come together? Uh, so that happened because I had bio envy, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I was part of, or I am part of a Facebook group where we kind of trade um, query letters. And so I saw a lot of query letters and a lot of them had better bios than me, <laughs> you know, the little sec biography sections of their queries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they had short stories that got published or they were shortlisted for an award or, you know, all these things. And I didn't have anything other than being a newspaper reporter at one point. <laughs> yeah. So at one of the Capital Crimes meeting, they talked about how they had an anthology coming up and they wanted, um, they were looking for submissions. So I thought, well, if I actually get picked, then that's something I could put on my bio. Yeah. And, and after it was selected, you know, a few months later, the president at the time, Penny Manson, emailed me and said, hey, you know, would you like to be vice president? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was pretty dead set against it. But because, uh, you know, I had other commitments, um, mm -hmm. you know, I was co-leader for my girls um, Girl Scout troops and I'm also a secretary for um, a local nonprofit group so I was busy but 
I'd been listening to podcasts. Uh, the Sisters in Crime has a podcast. So does um, Crime Writers of Color. And a lot of the writers that they talk to, they served in some capacity for those groups. And so I felt, okay, well, they did it. They stepped up. They were probably really busy too. And then the other side of that too was, you know, I talk a lot about how representation matters and that diverse voices need to be heard. And so if I'm given an opportunity to represent myself and my or a part of my community, then I can't say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I decided to go ahead and do it. And it was good. It's It's been great. There's a yeah. lot of really fun people, amazing people. So that's fantastic. I love that you took that initiative and just kind of dove in and did it anyway. So what kind of responsibilities does that involve? It probably just depends on each vice president or each chapter. Mostly it's about helping the president out, uh, kind of serving as their backup. But in this case, I also agreed to help out with the social media for capital crimes. So I've been, there was someone else doing it at the time and she did a great job. Um, That's kind of actually how I really connected with capital crimes was through um, what Marie did. She wanted someone else to take over. So I agreed to help out with that. So it's not taking away from your other responsibilities and commitments then you've managed to kind of work it in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It kind of depends on (laughs) the week. So in terms of listeners who are thinking about joining the organizations, what kind of things, what benefits do they get out of becoming members? There are huge benefits, mainly education and camaraderie. I think um, because we're both really lucky because we're crime writers and crime writing is big. So there's a lot of organizations geared for us. So we kind of have our pick. Um, I know other genres aren't quite as fortunate Um, But for instance, Sisters in Crime has been around for 30 years and they have tons of webinars and online classes and communities and resources available to you. So there's that. I mean, it's huge. And Mr. Writers America, the same thing. There's conferences for us to go to that are great. Um, But the other thing is the camaraderie. And it's through, in particular, through the local chapters, you get to um, meet other writers I found that incredibly helpful because, you know, writing is difficult. The actual writing process is difficult. And then getting published is very difficult. And, you know, there's the imposter syndrome. There's all kinds of rejection in the business. So having fellow writers to talk to, to celebrate with and to commiserate with is really, really important. So I think those organizations are kind of vital for that. Yeah, definitely. Are you part of many organizations or I know that you're part of Sisters in Crime? Yeah, Sisters in Crime. And I did actually the interview that you talked about with Tori Eldridge. That was the first that was what got me to join Capital Crimes. Oh, okay, great. I didn't know I could do not being in the area. Right. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I wanted to attend that webinar. And so I've attended a couple there. And I looked into doing Mystery Writers of America, but I have to either live in America, which I don't, I live in Canada, or I have to have a a book that's published in America. So goals for the future. Got it. Right. Um, Right. Yeah, that's right. Because I think they actually assign you a specific chapter based on where you live. Right. So um, which is kind of nice about Sisters of Crime is it's so open. It's very open. With the pandemic, 
you know, you can actually join multiple chapters. Yes, exactly. So yeah, and then I'm a part of International Thriller Writers and Crime Writers of Canada as well. Okay. So it's, I kind of did the same thing. I, I thought, okay, join, it seems like a good idea to join these because you, you know, you can network with other writers. I attended last year Sleuth Fest, which is okay. part of the Florida chapter of Mystery Writers of America. So even though I'm not a member, I can still you know, you can still, because in most cases, I think with the conferences and the webinars and that they have a member price and a non-member price. So that's, that's another thing that, you know, anyone who's not a member can still consider going to whatever they have going right. on. Even just chatting with other authors, published, non-published, mm-hmm. and, and seeing what everybody else is going through. And, and yeah, there's tons of benefits to joining organizations right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, you're also able to connect um, then on Twitter or Facebook or whatever as well. So yes, yeah, yeah. there's, there's more communication and yeah, I, I did find it easier to get to know people though, through the chapters and then later on online. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think Twitter is a little hard sometimes to really connect with people. Yeah. My next question was, how did you find the writing community? So what was it that was a little bit difficult um, you know, I think in particular, because it started with Twitter, you know, um, and I think that it's just such a fast platform. And you mm-hmm. kind of sometimes you don't know whether you're going to kind of step your toes into something that you shouldn't have. <laughs> it can yep. it can turn real quick, you it know. Can. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think I, that made me pretty cautious. I was very tentative about it. So I think that part was hard, but it also, you know, when you do connect with people, sometimes they'll post something about an event and then that's when you hear about that group and, um, and, and it just kind of snowballs from there. So I, that was, I found to be really, really useful and helpful. And then there's some people you just, for whatever reason you do really connect with, yeah. you know, like I think I have a doppelganger and somewhere on the UK, <laughs> our kids are the same age. We're both Japanese American, but she lives in the UK and we're, our kids were doing the same thing at the same time. So wow. it was kind of funny. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so great yeah. when you can connect with someone like that. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. That's where it started for me as well as Twitter. It, it has opened so many doors. I keep talking about that, but so many doors. And that's, that's how I've learned about everything. That's how I connected with other writers. That's how I learned about all of the different organizations and the conferences and all of that stuff, how to do queries. I didn't know how to do queries before, right? So Twitter was kind of the foundation. But yeah, I think for the most part, Twitter is definitely a plus for writers, for sure. Um, how do you balance? I've, I've, been, I've been dying to ask you that. How do you balance, you know, all that you do with the writing part of it? Because you're, you, you've kind of gotten into, gone into other avenues, which is great for your career. I'm just, but I'm wondering, how do you find the time to, to also write? To do I'm the struggling writing. with that a little bit. Yeah. I have been struggling with that. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of writing since the fall um, for a couple of different reasons. But one of the main reasons is that I'm so involved with the podcast now and, and editing and all of that stuff. I'm taking classes as well. So it's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, But, you know, I was just talking with um, a writer friend who we've become quite close and she said, block your time, block like half an hour in the morning and half an hour before you go to bed. That way you get some words on the page at the beginning of the day before you do anything else. And it's the last thing you do at night so that you're thinking about it (laughs) and can 
wake up and want to do more the next day. And that made so much sense because I mean, to find 30 minutes in the day in the morning and then 30 minutes, like it's, it's not really that big of a deal. So she was absolutely right. Why can't I do that? So basically just put it in my schedule and Mm -hmm. just make the time for it. And, you know, sometimes I find that I like to write when I want to write and not mm-hmm. so much on a schedule because I, I just, you know, what if I don't feel creative at eight o'clock in the morning? I don't know. But I've also been kind of free writing and writing sprints, doing writing sprints, which uh-huh. I love. Mm-hmm. And even if I took five minutes or 10 minutes and just wrote, write, 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 whatever comes to your mind. And it doesn't even have to do with your book. So once you start that process, then you kind of turn on the creativity, even if you didn't mm-hmm. feel it to begin with. And I'm finding that that's, that's helpful too. So then I can take the, you know, the rest of that half hour or some, sometimes it turns into more and, and focus on the book because now I've got the words flowing. Right. Right. So yeah, it's not easy. No. no <laughs> and I definitely want to find more, more time to do the writing. Cause that's, that's why I'm doing all of this right at the root of it. Yeah. I love writing and that's, I also had a hard time getting back to it when the kids started school again. Uh, I thought it would be easier because they were back in person. And so they were not in the house with me anymore, Mm -hmm. but um, you know, things picked up a little bit more activities picked up. And then I I had a little hard time kind of adjusting to a new routine before I finally kind of got back in the groove. Yeah. That can throw you off balance a little bit too, when something Mm -hmm. changes in your routine. Yeah, for sure. So how did your career as a journalist prepare you for being a writer of novels? I think it helped me learn how to gather information and then write about that information in a competent way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the whole idea is you're trying to communicate important information to people. So I think I, I, I got that part covered. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can string sentences together in a way that is pleasing. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know. Um, but I, I also think it gave me a good ear for, for writing. I know when something doesn't sound right uh, or does, just doesn't sound good, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, because I, I used to um, read my stuff out loud, kind of under my breath, just test out how it worked, basically. Mm-hmm. It also helped me tighten my writing quite a bit. I'm not a naturally tight writer, but I, I'm good at going back and looking at words that aren't needed and then mm-hmm. taking them out. So I think that's also really helpful. But it is a totally different kind of writing. It's much more formulaic. Um, you really have to stick to a certain voice. And um, fiction writing is way more fun, way more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Reading stuff out loud. So going back to that, that is something that I don't know, I've always just kind of done. And whether Mm -hmm. it was in school, while I was, you know, trying to figure out making sure that everything sounded correct. And that's, you know, I'll do the same thing. I'll get through a chapter. And even though I'm trying not to edit as I go, I will still, you know, even just getting back into the writing the next day or something, just reading the last chapter and, you know, wherever you left off. But I like, I like that it gets you into the story. And I like that you can hear it's different from when you're looking at the screen than when you're hearing it. Right. So that's a really good way to to pick out something that just isn't sounding right. Yeah. The, one of the writing groups that I was part of, we would take turns reading our pages out loud. And it's better when someone else reads it to you. But 
when you're by yourself, most of the time you, you don't have the chance for that to happen. So, mm -hmm. but it is, it's a really good practice, which is why I, I don't have a problem with audiobooks. Because mm -hmm. if you listen to audiobooks, you kind of, it helps you develop your ear. And, you know, when I was a kid, I remember my parents would read to me all the time, but they also had, at the time, there were books on tape, you know, like the yes. Disney books and things like that. They were on books on tape and I, I would play them over and over and over again. But I, I really do think that it helps you develop your ear, just like yeah. when you're kids and you, you read to your kids to help them develop good reading habits and essentially writing habits, too. Yeah, absolutely. We used to have records. <laughs> <laughs> the, little, the little records, <laughs> all the Disney stories. Yes. <laughs> what is your favorite part of writing and what's your least favorite part? Uh, so I, I really enjoy the writing. Uh, you know, I love sitting in front of the computer and just typing, even if um, I'm not writing the actual prose or, or the actual work in progress. Sometimes I'm just, I'm a plotter. So I have to, you know, I have to sit down and type out what I think is going to happen or ideas and things. I have to type it out, mostly so I won't forget. <laughs> like, yeah. But I, I like that part of it. I, I, I just, I really enjoy writing. I'm happiest when I'm able to be left alone and I can write. The part that I don't like is, you know, the marketing and uh, I probably don't like copy editing either. I, I'm not great with commas and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But um. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I did struggle quite a bit with having to put myself out there so much and realizing I really have to sell myself. I have to sell my book. I have to, yeah, I, I just I have to pitch my book. That whole thing it was, I found very difficult because, you know, in journalism, we didn't necessarily do that. We would just we would pitch stories, but they were news stories. So it was like, well, the city council did this and, you know, people are mad about that. So, mm -hmm you know, done. That's a story. <laughs> yeah. It's different than something that's coming from your brain, something that you created, right? There's yes. And then you have to, about that. right. And you have to make it sound good. Yeah. So I'm not I, good at the selling part. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's scary. It's scary yeah. from, you know, when you first get out there and, and, you know, I've, I've got this story and oh my goodness, I'm supposed to let someone read it. Well, yes, it's on an, it's, yeah. there's no way around it. You have to go through it. You have to just do it. And then it gets easier, you know, and mm -hmm. as you get introduced to people who are going through the same thing or who did go through the same thing, it gets easier and it's it's yeah. not quite so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So before you mentioned your first short story that was published in the Capital Crimes Anthology, can you tell us a little bit about what Cranes in the Cemetery is about and what your thoughts are on writing short stories? Is it something you enjoy? Will you continue doing that? Sure. Uh, so this is actually where um, my main character from my manuscript gets to make her debut. <laughs> she is um, visiting her paternal grandparents in California, and they are the um, mostly the Japanese side of her family. And so um, she's helping her bachan, which is grandmother in Japanese, volunteer at the Buddhist Church Bazaar when they stumble on a body in the nearby cemetery. And there's a trail of clues that leads back to the church. And so she and her grandmother have to find out who the killer is um, in time to save the church bazaar from being canceled. Is that kind of stuff that shows up in the pages in the book? Or is that kind of almost like a backstory or, or a different, you know, something that happens off page in the book? 
It happens off page. So okay. um, I think my idea, originally that idea was going to be another book in the series. Cause I, I am hoping I would love for this to be a series. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I just, I like the idea of bringing it into Sacramento and, and it had to be the, the theme of the anthology was Northern California Cemetery. So Northern California Cemetery had to be mentioned. So that was okay. a really easy thing to do. And it takes place after, in my mind anyway, it takes place after my first book. The, okay. After the, the, the manuscript. Yeah. And so what do you think about writing short stories? I think they're harder. <laughs> I think they're a lot harder mm-hmm. uh, than manuscripts. There's not a lot of time for you to establish the characters and then the mystery and then solve it. (laughs) So I I found them to be a lot harder. Um, It is something I want to do more of eventually, but I'm really trying to focus on this manuscript first. And then I think when I'm done with it and um, someone else is reading it, then I might try another short story. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not easy. I think people that don't write them, it seems like they're thinking, it's probably easier because they're shorter, but that's mm-hmm. not it at all. <laughs> that is not no. the case at all. And actually, um, I tend to write more flash fiction, which is even shorter. Sorry, more flash fiction than short stories. Short stories. You know, mm-hmm. and sometimes I write those as well. But it's very different from writing novel-length manuscripts, right? You you don't mm-hmm. have the time, you don't have the space, and you have to make sure that you're writing clearly and that you're your word choices have to be so intentional. They have to be intentional in, in novels as well, but almost like tenfold because because right. of, you're limited with the space, right? What was the word right. count um, maximum for that anthology? It was five thousand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I. I don't think I even hit five thousand. It was kind of one of those deals where I felt like if I stretch this out anymore I'm going to be way over 5,000 yeah 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 it really forces you to look at what's necessary and what's not necessary right Mm -hmm. so my last question for today is what are your top five tips for writing in the mystery genre I think the main tip would be to read a lot which I think that's probably true for every genre Mm -hmm. but there's so many different subgenres in mystery writing um and it's I think it's good to try a little bit of everything if you can. I think it's important to be open to trying new things. That's not something I'm necessarily good at. So <laughs> but yeah, keep in mind, these tips are, you know, coming from someone who maybe isn't necessarily good at these things. <laughs> I also think, you know, we talked about this, joining writing organizations is really important, but I think you should also try to participate in them mm-hmm. you know not just join them you have to really um, go to the meetings you have to you have to stretch and you have to put yourself out there um, because that way you will really take full advantage of um, the resources that they offer otherwise you're just paying monthly or annual right. dues um, I would also say that it's good to give yourself a little bit of grace for instance you don't want to get too hung up I think on daily word counts or mm-hmm. word count goals, I should say, because I think you might frustrate yourself and maybe stop yourself from writing if you get upset with yourself for not hitting the thousand word mark, that kind of yeah. thing. And then to just write, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an idea, just just do it, just write it. Yeah. Uh, I lied. I have another question. 
<laughs> okay. Did you know? I mean, I guess if you've been holding on to the story for so long before you wrote it, I guess you knew that you wanted it to be a mystery. Is that something that you've wanted to always write in yeah. is mystery? Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've never had a desire to write anything else. As, even as a kid, I, re- I read Nancy Drew's. You know, I've always gravitated towards various kinds of mysteries. Yeah. What do you think it is that most draws you to it? I think it's a lot to do with the whodunit part. Uh, you know, I think one of the other things, it's, it's sort of like romance, too. At the end, you know that the case is always going to be solved. Mm-hmm. Just like if you with a romance, you know that there's going to be a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I like that. I, I like that kind of like knowing what's going to happen in a way. Closure, you know, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. There you <laughs> yeah. go. And, and that's that's the kind of writer I am, too. I, I, I like to put bows on things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that part of it as well. Um, the, in the ones that I like the most um, probably have, have to do with the characters. And I think that's kind of why I wanted to do a series is because I like the ones where at the end, I want to know more about the characters. Mm-hmm. I want to hear more about their stories. And so I, I kind of want to follow along with them. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have another so, one on the go yet? No, I don't. So um, one thing I learned is that, and you know, it's kind of a, and and when you think through, it makes sense. But at the time, you don't really think about it. Um, You know, it, I think it kind of depends on um, whether my agent is able to sell it. So while she is, you know, and I have no idea when this will happen, but you know, while she's doing that, I will be working on something else, but you probably shouldn't be working on the second in the series if you don't know what the first one is going to sell. So I do have an idea for another completely different book. um, And so that's the one that I'll work on. And then, but I do have ideas for the second book in the series. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention? Capital Crimes is putting on a writing workshop. Um, we're going to have one that runs that's going to be in person. And then we also have a virtual workshop that we're putting on with um, the Palmetto chapter of Sisters in Crime. Oh, yeah, and so um, I just wanted to give them a plug. So to register, they just have to go to www.capitalcrimes.org. And that's um, capital C-A-P-I-T-O-L crimes.org. Perfect. Yeah, I saw that. I'm trying to wrap my head around how how a virtual and in-person event works. So that is like the virtual stuff is separate or do they do they get to see what's going on in the in-person one? No, it's yeah, it's going to be separate and it'll be happening at the same time as our in-person event. So, yeah, yeah. So the people who come in person can get recordings of the virtual. That's awesome. I'm glad to see that that's an option because now that we're, I don't want to say it out loud in case I jinx it, but now that we're getting, you know, back to normal, it seems that some of the conferences are returning to in person. Mm -hmm. And for me, and I'm sure for a lot of others, I've been loving the virtual aspect because I'm able to attend, right? I can't, there's no way I can go to all these different things. So I like that there's still a virtual option available for some of these things, which is awesome. Yeah, um, we we like that too. Uh, we, and we try to make it hybrid and we are trying to, go as going forward, we are trying to do more hybrid type events, but there's a lot of technology involved yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been hard. So uh, 
you know, as whenever we can, we will just do Zoom and we'll do different kinds of in-person things. Like we did a coffee hour at um, a local bookstore, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people miss being in person. Yeah. Um, but the, there's a huge, even if you do live locally, it's really convenient to do it on Zoom. There's mm-hmm. no travel time involved. You can hit mute and go, you know, take care of the kids or the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so... And I know a lot of organizations, not just writing groups, but a lot of organizations are kind of dealing with the same thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and we're trying to, you know, keep the memberships or the members that we've attracted during the pandemic, too. So that's yeah. why we also want to make sure we have some Zoom things. So Nice. Okay. And the date for that one more time? May 14th. May 14th. All right. Well, I believe I've already registered for it. I'll have to double check, but either way, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Today, I'm joined by author Cassandra York. Cassandra was a senior at Ohio University when she experienced the events that inspired the Flapper Covenant series, though it would be some time before she set to work on writing a novel around the experience. She is a columnist and a former staff editor at RPG Watch and has also written for the Hampton Institute and Outlook magazine. She and her wife live in Ohio, where they are ruled by a warren of house rabbits and a chronic video game addiction. So welcome, Cassandra. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, So I'm really curious about the inspiration behind your debut, which was published in 2020. It's called Mary Everything. Can you give us a summary of the novel and then move into where you got the idea for it? Absolutely. Um, At its core, Mary Everything is about a college girl who knows she's a misfit, but doesn't realize how much until she opens a college yearbook from the 1920s. The yearbook overwhelms her with this painful nostalgia she shouldn't have, from memories she shouldn't have, and from there it just gets worse. Her life is swarming with things that shouldn't be possible, like the girl in antique clothes that are 80 years out of date, or seeing her own picture in that old yearbook. It's not long until the impossible turns deadly, and Courtney gets caught up in a storm of events bigger than she could have imagined. Now the clock is ticking, and an unlikely group of friends race against time to save Courtney from a terrifying death. Uh, The idea for it, so like Courtney, I was working at my college archives as well, um, but it was after my senior year rather than Courtney's, you know, sophomore year or whatever. And it was a very similar situation. I was assigned a, I was, so I was working for the um, collections curator and we had a big band artist from the thirties up to the seventies or eighties or whatever, really famous guy. And he had graduated from our college, our university, in the early 30s. And so he had bequeathed his collection to us. And so I was given that collection and told to research it and then organize it and then write a biography of this this guy. But as soon as I got into his yearbooks, I started feeling the exact same thing. I started feeling this painful nostalgia that had no logic, no grounding in reality at all. And I had this weird fugue for about a month or a month and a half where I was just absent. You know, my roommate told me that I was like a ghost, like I was a body in the room, but I just had this thousand yard stare. And the whole time, the real me, I was back in the 20s. I was wandering around these people that I had met in the yearbooks and I was 
wandering around my college and I would make our drives back home and not even remember them. It was a really weird situation. It was really painful. And I was haunted from it. And I, it was, it was a long time before I realized that maybe I had left part of myself back there because it was, I don't know. I started feeling like a ghost in my own life and about 2014 ish. Um, the idea just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like why not take the draft of a, of a story that I had started to write when that was going on and expand on that, create kind of a fictionalized memoir around it. And as soon as I realized, as soon as I made that decision, I instantly felt better. But then I had this promise to myself, okay, I've got to write this huge novel and I have no idea how to start it or how to finish it. So that was a long five years. That sounds incredible. A very haunting experience. That's just amazing. So, so you had this experience yourself and you essentially become the main character in your novel. Is that how that happened? Yeah. Um, I made Courtney sort of my, the idealized version of me, um, <laughs> how I would have wanted, how in a way, how I saw myself in college, but how I would have wanted to be like, you know, she's how I would have wanted to look, you know, she always has the right witty reply. She always, she's always on top of things and she's always funny and she always looks good no matter what, even when she's covered in blood and mud. And yeah. So Courtney is kind of my, my experience in that, but also she becomes the reader's eyes from our time. Someone seeing the twenties, it would be like a foreign country. Right. So she's sort of that bridge between the twenties and now, and she sort of translates that for a modern reader as well. Awesome. It sounds amazing. Um, and you refer, you. yeah, you refer to it as a memoir wrapped in fiction. And one of the things I keep hearing in the writing community from industry professionals is that a good memoir reads like fiction. So how did you decide to market it as historical fiction or literary fiction instead of a memoir? Well, um, short answer, because I wanted a happy ending, <laughs> long answer. So when I was a kid, uh, I didn't really have a very happy childhood, but I did have a Nintendo and that gave me access to a lot of games with knights and ninjas and mages and kids with powers and secret bases where the heroes could fall back and plot how to destroy the tyrants and the villains. And with Nintendo, the good guys always won. I mean, that is you always won if you were fast enough and skilled enough, if you had the will to see the game through. My dad was the ultimate villain of my life. You know, um, God, this is going to sound so self-pitying and I apologize, but he was abusive. He was an abusive narcissist. He, um, there's a lot of physical abuse. He would concoct excuses to just come and, and just beat me up whenever he wanted. And I could never do anything about it. So I would go to sleep a lot of nights, just wishing I had you know, these powers like super speed, martial arts, special weapons. So the next time he came into my room to attack me for no reason, I could turn the tables on him and just kick his ass, just give him the most epic ass beating you could imagine. Because in Saturday morning cartoons, someone always told the bullies, pick on somebody your own size. Well, nobody ever tells the bullies that in real life, especially when the bully is your dad and everyone fawns over him. Even at that age, I knew no one was coming to my rescue. I'd have to rescue myself. And I never did. It turns out years later, he did a lot worse to me. But if I had managed to stay in the 1920s like I wanted to, like when I had that experience I tried to do, that never would have happened. And if I had had awesome powers, nobody could ever hurt me again. So 
I guess to answer your question, I never really got that happy ending, but I could give it to Courtney. I could create a situation where you could go back in time and get trapped in the past and I could give her the powers that I always wanted. So fictionalized memoir it is. Right. Oh, well, I'm so sorry that you had those experiences growing up. Thanks. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people take their own experiences and when they write, they find it cathartic. Did you find that? Uh, I did actually. Yeah. It always hurts. You know, if, if you have an old unhealed injury or you have a blister, it always hurts so bad to get that lanced, but that's, that's what you have to do. And then you feel better afterwards. And this is kind of a, a gross medical metaphor, but if lancing those wounds, if I, if I took the blood and, and whatever was in them, and I use that as ink to write this story, mm-hmm. that would be a more powerful story, but it would also heal those wounds. So that's what I tried to do. Yeah. And so this is part of your Flapper Covenant series. Can you tell us a little bit about the next book and when that will be hitting the shelves? Okay. So the next book is where everything really gets real. The working title for it is Keepers of the Veil. And the main characters fulfill a promise they made at the end of Marry Everything. They become a real force to be reckoned with. But there's a big world outside of Braddock College. And Courtney only defeated one of her enemies at the end of Marry Everything. And there's more. This book is where I set up the rest of the series, the problems inside Courtney that she still has to uh, work out before she can really have the life she wants and the forces that want to stop her from doing that for their own reasons. This book is where the girls become what they're meant to be for the rest of the series. So it might be a little while. Uh, I've got bits and pieces written, but I'm still trying to map out the rest of the series, at least enough to know what I need to set up in this novel And there's a lot I'm trying to juggle in my head and I'm not doing a very good job. So I'm I'm kind of floundering at the moment, but um, I, I am working on it. And at the same time, I'm working on the rest of the series too, at the same time. Yeah. And how many books do you have planned or do you know yet? Um, Okay. So I'm thinking five books and if you don't mind, I'll give the working titles of those books in case those who have read the first book would like to know what they have uh, in store to look forward to. The first book is obviously Marry Everything. And the second is Keepers of the Veil, which I mentioned. From there, and this is rough, Jenny Ashford's daughter will take us further back in time, maybe somewhere more innocent. Red Witch of Soissons will take us into World War I and will join Hazel Morrison for an adventure on the Western Front. And The Silent Crusade, which will take us back to Autumn Grove in a showdown with the true bad guy of the series. There might be more. Uh, nothing is carved in stone yet, including what I just mentioned, but I think this is roughly where things are going to go. Awesome. Well, it sounds amazing. I love all the different time periods there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer or did the inspiration for Mary Everything kind of spur that on? So I think that my approach to writing is that, and I mean, I'm not saying these are the only people that can be writers. I mean, anyone can pick up a pen and, and tell their own truth. But I, I think for me, I'm one of those unfortunate people who um, I am a writer versus I became a writer. So like, it's always been the first thing I do if I'm working through something or if I'm trying to process something, I pick up my pen and I write it. It's one of the only things I've been any good at too. So I've always been a writer. And so Mary, everything came from sort of that being the only way that I knew knew how to process what I'd been through. And can you take us through your writing process? Like, do you have a routine or you just, you feel something and you need to get it out? Or uh, it sounds like you're maybe more of a pantser than a plotter. 
you picked that up. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I wish I had a process. I, yeah, I would roughly call myself a pantser, but I don't think that gets to the extreme spontaneity the way, of the way my brain works. I have ADHD to an extreme. For Mary, my writing process consisted of two things, Adderall and personal trauma. I tapped into those infected, unhealed wounds from my past, and I used the blood that I found to write the narrative. And sometimes the blood was from the wishes and desires too, so like good things. And that's left me pretty ill-equipped for the sequel. So now I have to start from scratch um, and find uh, a new source of ink, I suppose. To answer your question, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing and <laughs> and how to continue with this, but I'm going to figure out a way. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and in the book, I noticed some strong voice and vivid details, which is always something I like to see in books. What is your favorite part about writing? What elements come easy for you? So I would say for me, what comes easiest and most naturally, mood, ambiance, and building tension are all things I feel like I'm pretty good at. I love it when scenes flow from my fingers when I'm writing something moody or tense and it's going to explode at some point. I think those sort of situations like coiling those springs, uh, that's always something that uh, comes pretty naturally to me. Yeah, that tension. I love that too. When you get that, you're just in the zone and nothing can get you out of it. And you just, it just flows out. Right. You're on, you're on some kind of a, a slipstream and yeah. you're going someplace and there's nothing that there's nothing that's going to derail you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and then the opposite to that, what do you find the most difficult aspect to write? I would say plot. I really, really wish that I were better at looking, taking a look at a blank page with a title of my novel at the top of it and saying, okay, well, X, Y, and Z are going to happen in this novel. I, I really never have that. I never know exactly what's going to happen. I really don't even know where the story is going to go. I, I start from character and have to go from there. And, and I know a lot of readers are like, but that's good. You know, character, character is everything. Maybe, but I, I feel like I, I feel naked and insecure if I don't if I if I don't feel like my story is ever going to go anywhere. So I have to feel like I I have to create something exciting too. Whether or not I do, I don't know, but I feel like I do, and that's really difficult for me. Well, it sounds like with your ideas that you have for the next books for the series, that you might have sort of some idea of a a, a general plot. And, and just going back to your writing process as well, do you do you brainstorm when you first get the idea or do you like do you sit down and just kind of think about, OK, this is where I want to go or you just you have no idea where it's going and you just start typing? So I would say it's probably more like I, I, I feel like some kind of Appalachian bootlegger, like I, I sit down and I put a few grains of corn in a, in a, in a barrel and some water. And I, and I sit there and I just wait for it to ferment. And I, and I wait for, it's almost like draining a, a tree of sap or syrup or something too. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I, I wait until that fills up. That is painfully slow and, it, and it's just, it's painful. I, I think my writing approach is listening. So I, I try to just listen to what the ether feeds me and that that's agonizing. Yeah. 
when you're talking about listening, are you meaning listening to the character? Because you said that the you start really with the character. So are you listening for what that character, what he or she wants and, and where they're going? Yeah, um, them definitely. And, and they do, they are more talkative than the story itself. The story is, is mute and cruel in a way. So the, the whole the whole plot behind the series deals with multiverse and everything, like the, all these different universes. And in a way, I almost feel like that's what I'm doing too. I'm sitting down and I'm listening for what happens because I don't I don't like when when people really get down to it and people ask me, well, how did you make this up or that? I'm like, well, I don't know if I really made it up. I think that it happened somewhere, and I'm just listening to it. So I try to just listen to whatever is coming from that other universe and um, write that. That's awesome. That sounds really fascinating. You never know what's happening outside of what we don't understand, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so how has the publishing process been for you? Can you take us through how, how that worked? Um, the publishing process has been, I don't want to use the word painful. It hasn't been pleasant because I... I was ill-prepared for it. I rushed into it like I rushed into everything and did not plan very well. I don't think I'm capable of that. I came into it fresh with almost no PR campaign. And I still, two years after publication, have no idea what I'm doing for marketing, for PR, anything. And I'm also pretty surprised at the snobbery of, with the obvious exception of you. I mean, you're great. But the snobbery of interviewers and audiences alike um, and bloggers, people seem to look down their noses at you the instant they find out you're indie, uh, especially a lot of younger readers. They, it, it's almost like they, they would prefer something that might arguably be a little blander if it's got a fancier press logo on, on, on the spine. And so going up against the snobbery and going up against trying to make my voice heard among 30 million other voices. It's, it's been a challenge and I don't know if I can do this on my own. So I'm kind of tentatively putting out feelers to try to find maybe a, a small press that might work with me a little bit like a partnership and, and help guide me through this because I'm way out of my depth. Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I don't have any experience myself in self-publishing, but it, it does sound like it, it has some challenges, but it also sounds like, you know, some people have loved the experience. Some people haven't had the greatest experience. And I think it's all just, it's learning, right? It's a huge learning curve. Huge Um, learning curve. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, it absolutely has, it's absolutely has its advantages, you know, like, Mm -hmm so many advantages. I, I get to design my own cover, uh, which I did. And I, I get to design my own book layout and everything. I have complete creative control, but it is, there are a lot of obstacles that you're up against that a lot of blogs and, and guides and stuff that the people that you might look at, if you're thinking of self-publishing, don't prepare you for. Yeah. I do see um, a lot of indie authors in the writing community. And I think I could be wrong, but it seems like there are more now than what there used to be, which I think is great because there's you're going to find more people in that community and more support. Um, so it's a shame that you've experienced the the snobbery. Um, I'm just trying to think uh, in the back of my head here, what um, because I, I do get a lot of self published authors here that I talk with, and um, 
there must be some way for for people to connect. I, I have heard some of them say uh, sort of along the same lines where there there isn't a lot of support out there. But then on the other hand, I've heard others say that there is. So there must be some way to connect with other indie published authors so that um, so that you can get that sense of community and support. Because I think that's really important, regardless of of how your publishing journey looks. It is. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. And Mm -hmm. I think that whether like how much success you have in finding that community in a way comes down to personality, I think. And and Mm -hmm. it's true. There is no there's no central place. There's no forum we can go to and 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 find that. But and I know my experience is not universal by any means, but I have actually I've Twitter has been really amazing for me. Good. Um, I, I, you know, I, I found you on there and you were willing to speak to me. Um, and, and I, I've met, I've made so many other indie author friends who have written the most amazing work, like who have done the most amazing work themselves and, and who I've been able to help and who have been able to help me. And I have recently, just very recently found that sense of community and, and that is, it's absolutely irreplaceable. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you found that. And I, I always encourage people to go to Twitter and I know, I know it can be a shit show on there, <laughs> but at the same time you can, if you look, you can find your people there. So that's really important. And I'm glad you found that. Thank you. Um, and I understand that you write in a variety of genres. So it sounds like you kind of blend everything together, but do you ever write anything else besides, or have you ever written anything else besides the books that are going to be in these series in its own separate genre, or do you tend to blend everything? Um, yeah, I actually, um, this whole blending thing is pretty new for me. I started in college with a fantasy, just a regular old fantasy series that my college D and D group and I had run a campaign in, and I started writing a novel out of that. Of course I didn't really go very far. Um, and then I, helped my wife back in 2011, 2012, and a little on from there, uh, we created this huge sci-fi world. And so it's like a standard space opera sci-fi type deal. And that's still possibly in the cards as well. And I have a a steampunk fantasy series that's kind of in its infancy. I haven't really written much for it at all, but that's there as well. I think uh, the Flapper Covenant is the most eclectic and the most... I, this word is used way too often, but the most unique thing I've ever written. And I, I think I blended that just because I have ADHD and I couldn't decide, you know, I want a girl to go back in time, but I wanted to have powers too. And so it kind of just came together on its own, but it's been a lot of fun blending all those genres. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and then lastly, Mary, everything is a blend of magical realism, Midwestern Gothic, historical fiction, do you have any advice you could give to writers on writing that blend? I'm I'm sort of snickering at my answer. And, and this is just sort of self, self-effacing. This is sort of self-deprecating. But uh, I would say get ADHD <laughs> and don't restrain yourself from adding everything you think is fun into your story. Because even when you treat ADHD with medication, you can't focus. Writing in one genre requires a lot of focus. But if you don't or can't restrain yourself, your story is going to spill all over the floor like a stack of plates you're trying to carry when you're drunk. Um, then writing the novel will be more about trying to clean up the mess in your head. You'll already be in 10 different genres before you write the first paragraph. 
that's the best <laughs> advice is that is sort of just let it go. Yeah, I, don't. I think all those genres are there. And I think we unconsciously often try to try to focus ourselves a little bit. And a lot of people are really good at that. And that's how they manage to end up in one genre. And I'm not. And that's how I ended up with so many things that I couldn't control. Mm-hmm. So really, it comes down to don't limit yourself. If that's what you feel like writing, then let yourself write it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's all I have for you today. Did, did you have anything that you wanted to go over that we didn't talk about? No, your questions were really amazing. Um, and I had so much fun uh, sort of looking at them and, and sort of reflecting on, 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 the, on the process and, and where it came from and everything. Yeah. Well, awesome. And I just have to say, I am reading it. I haven't had a chance to finish it yet, but I am reading it and I I'm loving what I'm seeing so far. So I'm really excited to get to the end and I'm excited to see what you come up with next. Thank you so much. And and I'm I'm glad that you're enjoying it so far. I hope that it continues to be um, exciting for you. I will say that the book, the book itself doesn't know what it is either because the book it's like the, the, the old meme, uh, well, that escalated quickly. Well, the book escalates quickly and the yeah. book turns into something completely different by the end. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's sort of extreme, Awesome. but I, I hope that it's, I hope that's an experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and chatting with me today. It was, it's been a pleasure. And thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. And thank you for having me. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something from it. I have another special episode coming up soon featuring Alexandria Brown, who is the acquisitions editor for Rising Action Publishing House in Toronto. She's going to be taking your questions about the industry. So if you have anything that you'd like demystified, please reach out to me on Twitter at underscore badass writers or on my website at www.kathleenfox.com. I'll be taking questions up until May 20th. I can't promise we'll have time to get to them all, but we will get to as many as we can. For those who don't yet know of Rising Action, they are an up-and-coming small press based out of Toronto, and they are doing great things. And I can't wait to talk to Alex about all things publishing. Until next time, keep being badass.